It's an honor to be joined today by Dr. Massimo Piglucci. He's a philosopher and evolutionary biologist and professor at the City College of New York. Dr. Piglucci is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, prolific author of over 100 academic papers, 16 books, including Evolution, the Extended Synthesis, which we'll be talking about now, and the best-selling How to Be a Stoic, as well as literally thousands of posts and short clips of wisdom on his Stoic Meditations and Practical Wisdom podcasts and his Rationally Speaking blog, among others. His research interests include the philosophy of science and evolutionary biology, the nature of pseudoscience, and practical philosophies like Stoicism and Neoskepticism. Massimo, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a history of evolution from Darwin to Mendel and up to the modern synthesis before we talk about what is the extended synthesis. Okay, sounds good. Evolutionary theory went through, as you say, a number of iterations. The first modern one came out in 1858 with the joint publication of a paper at the Linnean Society in London by Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace. And that is the theory, the standard notion of common descent and natural selection. The two, there are really two fundamental pillars to the original theory of evolution. Number one, that all living organisms are related to each other. That's common descent. And number two, that any complex structure that has a function, an ecological function, is the result of a process that Darwin and Wallace hypothesized and dem demonstrated empirically, which is natural selection. Now, notice that the original theory had nothing about genetics, for instance, nothing about inheritance. Both Wallace and Darwin were aware that they needed a theory of inheritance, but they didn't have one. Darwin proposed something called blended inheritance, which didn't really work very well, and he realized it immediately. The irony is that Gregor Mendel, the discoverer of genetics, genetic inheritance, was in fact, had in fact published his papers already in that period, shortly after the publication of The Origin of Species, but Darwin was unaware of it. And because it was published, Mendel published in an obscure journal, and then he left what we would call today an academic career to become an administrator. So his stuff was not rediscovered until the, the 1900s. So we have the first iteration of the theory. Most very shortly thereafter, Wallace himself, together with others, came up with what is sometimes referred to as neo-Darwinism. This is the idea that whatever the inheritance mechanisms are, they're not Lamarckian. Because one of the major proposals had been that perhaps inheritance happens by use and disuse of parts and by, by some kind of internally generated force, basically, that living organisms can, let's say, the classic example would be giraffes that get they stretch their neck more and more because they want to reach higher and higher fruits and then they pass this ability to stretch their neck to their offspring that's lamarckism and it became pretty clear very soon that was not the way to go so neo-darwinism which was articulated about 20 30 years maybe after darwin's original publication markedly excludes lamarckism as a process so now we got two iterations already of the theory. And then we get to the late, late 1800s, early 1900s, especially the early 1900s, the, there is some criticism, mounting criticism of the theory of evolution for two reasons. First of all, because it did not 
seem to go well with the now rediscovered genetics. So turns out geneticists were discovering things called mutations. Mutations seem to be an all or nothing thing. Either the fruit fly has red eyes or it has white eyes. That's it. And if you start blending things in, in, in the process of inheritance, then how do you get these things, these characteristics that are very separate, very distinct? So it seems like to the early geneticists that their discoveries that were incompatible with Darwin. And the paleontologists were not very happy either because they couldn't see how a process such as natural selection could actually generate what they saw as trends in evolutionary change that lasted sometimes for hundreds of thousands or even millions of years. It was hard to imagine what kind of selective pressure would last for that long. Ecological systems change much more rapidly than that. So there were two sources of discontent. That led to what is referred to today as the modern synthesis. So now we are, which happened in two periods. We are now in the, the first period is 1920s and 30s. A group of brilliant geneticists, including Ronald Fisher and Sewell Wright and J.B.S. Aldane, basically reconciled genetics with Darwinism. They actually showed that, yes, an individual muta mutation may cause a yes or no kind of phenotype that is a kind of appearance or behavior. But if you put hundreds or thousands of genes together, their individual contributions will smooth out into what it's called a normal distribution, a, a sort of bell-shaped statistical distribution. And that is perfectly compatible, they showed mathematically, with Darwin's theory. So that was one big deal resolved. In the 90s, late 30s, and then into 40s and early 50s, a second group of people coming from, from naturalistic studies, botanical studies, zoological studies, these include Ernst Meyer and Theodosius Dobchansky and Stebbins and a few others, including a paleontologist, J.J. Simpson. So they, they also did the work of reconciling and extending the Darwinian theory to everything else that was left over, but almost, I should say, everything that was left over, including paleontology, zoology, botany, etc. There was one major area of biological research that was still outside of the modern synthesis, and that was developmental biology. Nobody could figure out how to integrate what developmental biologists were discovering about how organisms develop early on in their lives with either genetics or evolution. So now we're talking the 1950s. From the 1950s to the 1990s, things pretty much proceed as business as usual. Evolutionary biologists keep doing their work. Developmental biologists do their own work. And then in the 1990s, a number of people, including myself, started pointing out that actually, as it turns out, now we do have an idea of how to reconcile developmental biology with evolutionary theory, except that we need to expand that theory. We need to, in, to include a number of mechanisms and phenomena that were not known, not only in Darwin's time, but not even at the time of the modern synthesis in the 1920s and through the 40s. And that is what has led to what some people refer to as the extended synthesis. And now we're caught up. Now we are where we are now. now the modern synthesis Factoring in random genetic mutation combined with genetic inheritance and then natural selection pressures operating on those. That's what I was taught and I presume what most of our listeners are familiar with. I hadn't even heard of this extended synthesis until two months ago. I was listening uh -huh. to 
a debate between two neuroscientists, Mark Solms and Lisa Feldman Barrett, and they were debating about the evolution of emotion and whether you get categorically distinct emotions innate at birth. So does an infant innately know how to differentiate between, let's say, heat-based pain or like a cut type of pain, or is it just you have valence and arousal, and then only later as the brain develops do you get this sort of contextual factor of you how to differentiate different types of pain or different types of emotions. And Lisa criticized Mark for his theory based on a lot of animal research, including some of Jakob Pankseps' early work who developed basic emotion theory. That was all grounded in the modern synthesis and that Mark's take, Lisa claimed, failed to take into account an extended synthesis view, including like epigenetic factors and embryonic development and things that we've learned in the last 30 years or so. Yep, that's right. That's exactly right. And that debate has been going on now for quite some time. People started talking about what we today call the extended synthesis on and off almost immediately after the modern synthesis was congealed and put into textbooks. The pioneers of what we call the extended synthesis, although they did not use that term at the time, were people like Malhausen, who was a Russian biologist, and he wrote in the 1940s. So, it's, so he was writing pretty much simultaneously with the people that I, that I already mentioned. And he was already pointing out that there were some lacunae, there were some areas of the modern synthesis that didn't work quite well. And frankly, the modern synthesis themselves knew it. Ernst Meyer was one of the staunch supporters of the modern synthesis, one of the originators. And yet he very clearly said several times in his writings, but developmental biology doesn't fit. So he was aware that there was something there that, that was missing. However, the modern, the current incarnation of the extended synthesis really started taking shape in the 1990s and then much more so in the last decade and a half or something like that. And it's still ongoing. Not every evolutionary biologist is convinced that this is a thing. I think that if you frame the question in terms of do we need an extended synthesis, some modern evolutionary biologists would say no, and some would say yes. Uh, but in fact, that reflects more preference for terminology and for how they see the history rather than the substance. Because if you start saying things like, do we need to take into account epigenetic phenomena? Or do we need to take into account phenotypic plasticity? Or do we need to take into account facilitative variation? They all say yes. And then some of them will say, oh, yeah, that means we need an extended synthesis. And others would say, oh, no, that's just part of the regular business. We're just adding more stuff. And to some extent, I don't think it matters that much. It is a terminological debate, and it is a debate that is probably best left to philosophers of science and historians. Don't let the scientists themselves decide what to call or what not to call what they're doing, because they're really not, not particular. They don't have the, the, usually the historical perspective or the philosophical perspective for doing so. But at the same time, it is important in the sense that if we agree as a community that there is a new effort along new directions going on, that means funding is going to be set aside for that kind of research. That means grant proposals getting funded. That means graduate students and postdoc positions that are devoted to certain kinds of lines of research. That means faculty positions that are devoted to certain lines of research. So it actually does matter at a from a practical perspective. And I suspect that part of the debate there is eminently pragmatic. We've talked about 
epigenetics a good amount on this podcast. So I assume that listeners have some familiarity with that. But the developmental, the evolutionary developmental biology component and phenotypic plasticity, that I imagine is new. How does that connect to and expand upon the modern synthesis? Yeah, let's take phenotypic plasticity, which is actually my area of expertise. And so I feel more, more comfortable about it. That's another one of those funny stories. Because phenotypic plasticity as a phenomenon was actually discovered in the early 1900s, just shortly after the discovery of Mendel, the rediscovery of Mendel's work. So again, it's one of those things we've been knowing about for quite some time. It's how we think about that phenomenon that, is, that has changed. So first of all, what is phenotypic plasticity? The simplest definition is that plasticity is the property of a genotype to produce different phenotypes when exposed to different environments. Now, some examples are trivial. Human beings, if they grow up with nutrients and food in abundance and stuff like that, they become tall. If they don't grow up with enough food and nutrients, they are, their growth is stunted and they are short. And that's a trivial example of phenotypic plasticity. It's the same genes. We're talking about the same exact genes. But if you expose those genetic, that genetic makeup to different environments, sufficiently different environments, then you'll get different phenotypes. And that's the epigenetic component linking between those two. Would you say that epigenetics is like the function behind what leads to phenotypic plasticity? Correct. At a mechanistic level, basically, a lot of phenotypic plasticity is underlined by epigenetic effects. However, there are much less trivial examples of these kind of things. For instance, one of my favorite is there are some semi-aquatic plants that have a really interesting problem to solve. They spend some of their lives below water and some of their lives above water. Now, that may sound trivial, but in fact, the physiology and biochemistry of gas exchange in, of, from the leaves to the surrounding environment is very different if you are underwater or if you are above water. That means you, you need very differently structured leaves, so the shape has to be different. The internal anatomy of those leaves have to be different, and in fact, even the biochemistry of the gas exchange has to be different. Otherwise, the plant is not going to do well. Sure enough, those plants have evolved a very interesting type of adaptive plasticity so that it, as, so long as the new leaves develop underwater, they sense that environment, that particular environment, and they develop in a very different kind of way, not in, a, in the simplistic, or oh, you get taller or shorter, but their shapes is different, their metabolism is different, their physiology is different. And if they're above water, you get a completely different result. In fact, so different that early botanists who found sometimes only parts of these plants, they, they, were in, they either observed the ones that were below water or the ones that are above water, they actually thought initially that these were actually two different species. So that they, they look that different. And wow. you have examples of plasticity like that also in animals, in central amphibians, for instance, including even in mammals. In fact, we know from research over more than a century that phenotypical plasticity is essentially a universal biological phenomenon. It's pretty much every species that has been studied from bacteria to mammals have it to different degrees, of course, in different, different, affecting different traits in different ways, but pretty much everything has it. Now, as I said, this thing, this phenomenon was discussed, discovered and discussed in the early 1900s by Johansson, who was one of the, the, actually was the guy who came up with the terms genotype and phenotype. And he did some research in Daphnia, 
where it shows the existence of this plasticity. It shows that Daphne has these little little organisms that you find in, in ponds and stuff like that. And they found, Johansson found that if the pond has had predators, the Daphne, the Daphne grow something that is called a helmet, basically a pointed thing that it's supposed to deter predation. And if they grow up in environments without predators, they don't because it, it actually costs metabolically to, to build the helmet. So it's clearly an adaptive case. It's a, it's a case of adaptive plasticity. So Have you heard is, of the yeah. video game Spore? No. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> this is a pretty old, it's 15 years old now. It came out in 2007, 2008, maybe. And the basic idea is you start off as a single cell, and then you go around and you eat little nutrients and you get evolutionary points, so to speak. And there then you, you can build from that cell <laughs> outwards. And very early on, you, there's a decision tree. You can decide whether you want to be foraging herbivore. And then in which case, you're not really investing into anything that allows you to eat other animals, you're investing right. into all sorts of defenses. Defense, but right. then if you're more on the attack side, you can develop these horns. And it's so the graphics are really bad because it's really old, but you get to evolve all the way from single cell up to actually spacefaring. Wow. I, the best part for me was in the early stages, right as you come out of the ocean. So you get you're like in the dinosaur era. And anyway, you right. start out really small as this sort of reptilian creature, and then you can adapt into so there's all these branching, you can get wings, you can get claws, you can get, and all of them have special moves. Anyway, <laughs> so I'm thinking about this in video game terms of when you're yep. saying there are different energy costs and you have to invest in, in one track or the other. And that is, in fact, a pretty much universal process in biology. There's always trade-offs. Organisms always have to deal with trade-offs. And what plasticity does, however, is it may make some of these trade-offs conditional. So that instead of evolving one way or another, you maintain the ability to do either depending on environmental conditions. So it makes you more flexible, essentially. But of course, plasticity itself comes as a, with a cost because it, you have to maintain additional biological, biochemical machinery, genetic machinery, et cetera, in order to be plastic. Now, as I said, this was discovered in the early 1900s. It was pretty much ignored until the 1950s when, where Schmalhausen and a few others including, interestingly, Dobjansky, who was actually one of the co-founders of the modern synthesis, started doing systematic work on phenotypic plasticity. So they cloned or otherwise replicated uh, the same or very similar genotypes. They put them under control, different control environmental conditions, and they showed that plasticity was, in fact, rampant, was all over the place. And yet, until the 1970s, maybe even as late as the 80s, most evolutionary biologists referred to plasticity as noise. That is, it was something that you want to e eliminate from your... They were aware of it, but you want to eliminate it from your experiments. You want to control the environment so there, there is no plasticity, and you can get at the real thing, which is the genetic differences. And it is only in the 1980s that framework begins to shift. And it's, it was a privilege for me to actually be there when the shift happened. One of the very first people who wrote influential reviews on major journals like the Annual Review of Ecology and Systematics was my PhD mentor, Carl Schlichting at the University of Connecticut. And I went to work with Carl precisely because I saw that paper out and I thought, wow, this is really cool. I want to, I want to work on this kind of stuff, right? And then I saw a few years later that even when I started proposing either, either sending to NSF to the National Science Foundation, my own grant proposals as a young faculty, 
or submitting papers to various journals like Evolution, Ecology, et cetera, initially the response was, but nah, this, isn't this just noise? And then over a period of a few years, the number of people that were working on plasticity became so large and so overwhelming. And so the evidence was so obvious that all of a sudden it shifted. And there was a period where you couldn't open an issue of evolution without finding multiple papers on plasticity published. And a lot of grants were accorded, granted, et cetera, et cetera. So this thing has happened very recently. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of what is interesting from an historical and even philosophical perspective is that a lot of these things, not all, but a lot of these things were actually known all the way back to at least the beginning of the 20th century. It's the attitude the biologist had about these things that has changed. I read a bibliographic analysis of the term life history theory recently, and I'm sure you're familiar. So this starts off as a term used in evolutionary biology, and I think it's fairly narrow in its research. It starts off, there are some theoretical papers on the topic, and then Basically, it plots out the number of citations, and in, in the bibliographic analysis, it begins very radially. So there's theoretical biology papers in the center that everyone is citing, and then people doing research on birds or on reptiles or on mammals, they all kind of clump together. And then eventually, you get some evolutionary psychologists citing it about humans. Right. And then you get developmental psychologists and other psychologists citing those evolutionary psychologists. And then you get social scientists citing the other psychologists. And then it starts off what's this perfectly radial flower, and then it branches out into what looks like a neuron. So you have the big biology <laughs> act. You have the cell body, the soma, which originally looked like a flower. And then you get this whole trailing of, and then by the time you're in something like sociology, they're using the term very differently than what the right. biologists originally meant. So now in psychology, if you hear people talking about life history theory, the core of it is still there, but they're more talking about children raised in early adversity and how that leads them to take more risks, which is, of course, part of the theory. But then in the biological terms, when you're dealing cross species, it's more so talking about if you're a very large species, like most mammals, we have relatively few babies at a time. And we live longer and the survival rates and the rates of parental investment are higher. And then species like insects and fish, they're laying thousands of eggs and most of them die. And it's all on a very fast timeline, right? That's right. Yes. And in fact, a similar sort of evolution and spreading of the term plasticity has happened from evolutionary biologists to, let's say, neuroscience. These days, a lot of neuroscientists or cognitive scientists talk about brain plasticity, but what they mean mm -hmm. by plasticity is only somewhat related to what we mean in evolutionary biology. Yeah, it's sort of the same thing, but not exactly, because they're talking about the plasticity of the adult brain, for one thing. And typically in evolutionary biology, we refer to developmental plasticity. So plasticity as it manifests itself before the organism actually gets to the adult stage. Now, they are, they are related. They're, it's not like they're completely different things, but you can see how the shifting from one field to another, that the actual use of the terms changes. I see that in my own area of research on pubertal hormones and brain development. So not only the way we're using the term plasticity differently to talk about the brain versus plasticity in development, like organizing or activating effects of hormones, but it seems like almost like we're playing a game of catch up in psychology. So a lot of the basic research that we're doing now has already been done decades ago in rodents. And even yep. on the statistical front, I did my degree in biostatistics before this. So in public health departments, it seems like they caught on to fancy things like mixed effects models long before social scientists did. Yep. 
Yeah, I know this. I've observed something like that happening in other fields these days, especially with the recent introduction of machine learning systems like ChatGPT. There's a lot of talk about neural networks, right? And relatedly, although it's not the same concept, genetic algorithms. Genetic algorithms and, neur and neural networks are actually essentially rediscovering. People that are studying these things are rediscovering what population geneticists had discovered 40, 50, 60 years ago. And at some point, in fact, when genetic algorithms were all the rage before the rise of, of neural networks, which are more sophisticated, in evolutionary biology, a famous population geneticist actually wrote a paper and said, you guys keep coming up with all these new papers discovering what you think are new phenomena. But if you just asked us, we, we could tell you that this is the way genes work. And since your systems work in the same way in which genes work, hey, we can predict what you're going to discover over the next several years. It was just pretty funny. But that what happened, but that's understandable, right? It's what happens when an idea jumps fields, but not everything that comes with that idea from the old field, from the original field, makes the move, right? So mm -hmm. only a part of it or an aspect of it. And so then people just start rediscovering things that researchers in the first field said, yeah, we know that. We found out that. And so now we're in philosophy of science, and this seems to mimic your own career trajectory because you did your PhD in evolutionary biology and then another PhD in philosophy. And I think now you would identify more as a full-time philosopher. So how did that transition happen? A midlife crisis, really. <laughs> So at some point, I was at the University of Tennessee at the time, and things were going very well. I, had, I was a full professor with tenure. My funding was regular from NSF as much as it could be because it's always very competitive, but I had good graduate students, postdocs, et cetera. And then at one point, I thought, okay, this is great. Now, do I really want to keep doing the same kind of thing for another 20 or 30 years? And the answer immediately was, no, I don't. I need to do something else at some point. Now, this is not unusual. A lot of researchers or academics that get to post-tenure or to the level of full professor, they, they begin to look around. And this is one of the reasons why we have a tenure system with sabbatical. During a sabbatical, you're supposed to ask yourself that kind of question. Where else should I go? What else could I do, could I do that it's maybe different from what I've been doing recently? So this is not unusual per se. What was unusual is the direction I went. So most of my colleagues who went through a similar process would go and look at nearby fields. So you're an evolutionary biologist, you look at ecology, or you look at molecular ecology or molecular evolutionary biology, or you go and visit during your sabbatical another lab to learn a number of techniques that you have not used before, and then you come back and integrate them into your research program. In my case, I looked pretty far away. I looked into philosophy of science. And the reason for that is at least twofold. On the one hand, I actually always had an interest in philosophy since I was in high school. That's because I grew up in Italy, where you have to take three years of philosophy in high school, and my teacher was great. So she communicated this interest for the field. So I always kept up with, with philosophy, especially philosophy of science. And the second reason was serendipitous. It just happened that as I was asking myself existential questions of what do I want to do in the next phase of my life, the University of Tennessee hired a brilliant philosopher of science, Jonathan Kaplan, who now is at Oregon State in, in Portland, sorry, in Corvallis. And, uh, and Jonathan actually had done his research, his thesis at Stanford on gene environment interactions. So he knew my work. He looked me up. 
we started, we went out for coffee. We hit it off very well immediately. We became friends. And then he started coming to my lab meetings and we started interacting. Then we started collaborating on papers. And at some point, the idea struck me as maybe this is this philosophy thing is something that I need to take a closer look at. When people ask me about my interest in brain development, I always say that it stems from philosophical interest and free will and moral responsibility. When you're thinking about the nature and nurture question, here we are. If it's your genes or environment shaping your brain, emotions, behavior in ways outside of your control, how much room for free will is there? Have you obsessed over that question in a similar way? <laughs> On and off. <laughs> yes. If you think about, if you're a scientist, especially a biologist, and especially if you have an interest in philosophy, you cannot avoid that question. It's eventually it's going to hit you. And then you're going to start having this, in my case, at least, this interesting report with the question itself. So I went through periods where I said, no, that's a completely useless question. Nobody's going to ever going to be able to figure out it's based on a some, some kind of fundamental misunderstanding of terminology. And then on the other hand, I went through periods where I said, oh yeah, that's a big one. And here's the answer on and off. It's one of those questions. And of course, as you say, it's not only intrinsically interesting, meaning intellectually stimulating, but it's also practically interesting because if it turns out that we don't have, the, you can make a good argument that we don't have free will and therefore no moral responsibility, that means that we should be looking at things very differently, even from a very practical perspective. For instance, our system of crime and punishment would have to be overhauled if it turns out, as I believe, that there is in fact no free will. <laughs> Do you know the neurogeneticist Kevin Mitchell? No, I don't. I'm not familiar. He's just written a book called Free Agents, How Evolution uh -huh. Gave Us Free Will. And oh boy. what he's doing is it's he's not really rejecting the sort of biological reductionism, the facts of the matter. But he's saying yeah. that if you say that because we can reduce everything to biology and chemistry and physics, that there's no free will, like free will itself becomes a useless concept. The only thing that would have free will, if by free you mean separate from the entire causal, causal chain of the universe, the only thing that could have that is like some god. But right. so he's using degrees of freedom as the way to measure free will. So he's saying, if you take this degrees of freedom approach, you still can get meaningful free will, like saying that humans have more free will than animals or saying that adults have more free will than children or people without brain damage have more free will than people with brain damage. Even if degrees of freedom ultimately collapse to zero, if you plug in like the entire universe equation. Yeah, I think that's fundamentally right. I, that's in, in philosophy, that position is known as compatibilism. And it's the notion that, yes, if you think of free will properly, in the proper way, not as in this kind of magic, I'm completely independent of the cause and effect, then it turns out there are, in fact, degrees of free, so to speak, will. And in fact, I would much, I think that it would be much better to put it in terms of constraints. There are obvious examples, right? So if, let's say I'm raising my hand now out of my quote-unquote free will, as opposed to you coming here and pushing it up and forcing it up, there is a difference between those two situations. And if we don't recognize that there's a difference, then we're just kidding ourselves. Obviously, they're not the same thing. And obviously, there is more autonomy on my part or more agency on my part if I decide to raise my hand as opposed to if somebody else pushes it up. So those things are, to some extent, that's trivially true. And part of the problem is that a lot of people get confused and all erupted into the terminology when they're talking about free. Yeah, free from what? 
Right. If you mean free from the original meaning of free will, which really goes back mostly to Christianity, to early Christianity, the original meaning does mean contra-causal, that is, without causes, right? that you have, there's no influence whatsoever. You somehow, autonom entirely autonomy, in autonomous fashion, you can decide to do things or not to do things. That's magic, as far as I'm concerned. I believe that the universe is deterministic in that broad sense of the term. There too, that's another term that confuses a lot of people. What do you mean by determinism? And there's very different, many different varieties of determinism. Mine is very minimalist. I simply believe that we live in a universe that is regulated by cause and effect, period. In other words, there's no miracles. There's no, nothing escapes cause and effect. Now, how then you can cash out that determinism at a microscopic level, at a quantum level, I don't care. It's, a, it's an interesting question, but it's not really pertinent to what we're talking about at the moment. We all agree that, I shouldn't say all, most people agree, especially if they have a science background, that yeah, we do live in a universe that is regulated by cause and effect. And so within that kind of universe, free cannot mean without causes or outside of causality. It has to mean something else. And what it means is, I think you're right, or the other you mentioned is right, it's a matter of degree of constraints. The fewer constraints you have, the more free you are. One of the places my interest in biology and philosophy connect is here in this nature-nurture question. And another of them is about broader evolutionary trends in belief systems. So knowing your interest in stoicism and different forms of thought like skepticism and, and pseudoscientific beliefs on the other extreme, whether you believe that evolution has guided us in if evolution is selecting for different types of belief systems in the Jungian way of there are these archetypes, there's this collective unconscious of themes that resonate with people. And that is why across cultures, across religions, you do see fairly universal themes. Yeah, I have a little bit of skepticism about that particular thing, especially about the notion of a collective unconscious, which depending on how you think of it in terms historically, but it comes down from Carl Jung. And for one thing, I think that there is really no empirical evidence for that. Yes, there is convergence. Sometimes we do find examples of cultural convergence, but in a lot of other cases, we don't. We find a lot of cultural divergence. And so then you have to start picking to pick and choose your examples in order to make it fit with the general idea. I think that when we find examples of cultural convergence, those are the result either from a biological perspective, you can use a biological framework either of convergent evolution or a parallel evolution. In other words, either different cultures come up with similar answers to similar questions, or there is actually cross-cultural contamination. So there, there is actually ex exchange. For instance, you just mentioned Stoicism. Many people have pointed out that from in terms of ethics, Stoicism is very similar to Buddhism. Now, do we have any historical evidence that Buddhism influenced Stoicism or the other way around? Not really. There is, we do know of some contact between the ancient Greeks and, and the very early Buddhists. However, that contact, which happened at the time which Alexander the Great went to India, was actually mediated by Pyrrho, who was a skeptic, not a Stoic. And Pyrrhonists' ideas are very different from the Stoics. So we don't think that there is any reasonable connection in terms of cross-fertilization. 
what probably happened there is that both Buddhist thinkers and Stoic thinkers hit on similar solutions to the problem that they were concerned with, which is suffering. And, and a one logical solution to the problem of suffering is detachment, is if you stay less attached to certain things and people, et cetera, then it's normal, then of course you're going to suffer less. And so the, when those people or things are going to be missing or dying or whatever it is, right? So now the Stoics and the Buddhists articulated that concept in a di in different fashion, but it's a, basically the same idea. So I, that I think is one example of independent parallel evolution of a concept that becomes prevalent in a particular culture. But there are also a lot of examples of convergent evolution in the sense that cultures, there was cultural transmission from one place to another. Those two modes, I think, are sufficient to explain the known variety of cultural beliefs. I don't think we need to postulate some kind of unconscious realm that somehow is, notice how I get vaguer and vaguer uh -huh. about this, that somehow is responsible for the same phenomena. That, that's a very basic concept in philosophy, right? Go for the simplest explanation unless you need to get more complicated. How about in evolutionary terms, our desire for some sort of transcendent meaning in our lives? You see this in Viktor mm. Frankl, and he's Jungian in that sense of saying, even if all of our biological drives are met, and yeah. certainly in Western societies today, you have that. You have abundance of all the things you think you need to survive, rates of mental illness are skyrocketing and people have this sort of existential nihilism. And it seems like stoic ideas are really resonating with people as an antidote to that. Mm -hmm. Then I look at that and that seems to suggest to me that it's not just the biological drives that we were selected for. There's some selection pressure for we need to feel like we have some greater meaning. So I'm yeah. trying to think about that in evolutionary terms and yeah. what's going on there. Well, no, you're, first of all, you're absolutely right. Of course, we do have, this seems to be a human universal, this notion that once the basic needs are taken care of more or less, then we start thinking about things like transcendence and things like meaning and stuff like that. And I'm reminded of a cartoon, actually, that I had on my door as a graduate student, so a number of years ago, that showed these classical sort of evolutionary sequence from a fish and then an amphibian and then a reptile which of course is itself a caricature of how evolution works. And then the mammals and finally human, the human being, right? And each one of these species had a little caption on their head. And the first caption said, eat, sleep, reproduce. And then the second was, so the fish. And the amphibian, eat, sleep, reproduce. Well, in the same way, all the way up, including the mammal. And then when it comes to humans, the bubble said, what is the meaning of life? Mm -hmm. And of course, the implication was the meaning of life is eat, sleep, and reproduce, because that biologically, those are the only things that actually matter. In fact, sleep is not necessar necessary for every species, but reproduction and foraging definitely are, because otherwise you're not going to, your genes are not going to be transmitted. Now, that was an interesting way of to remind, a funny way to remind you that there is something special about human beings. There is something different about human beings. However, I would caution about the notion that everything that we observe in terms of phenotypic traits or behavioral traits, which are a subset of phenotypic traits, has to be adaptive. Evolutionary biologists for a long time have known that lots of traits are not adaptive. Lots of traits are the byproduct of other adaptations, or they become adaptive 
in a new environment, even though they were not in the original environment in which they actually first appeared. So Stephen Jay Gould famously called them spandrels. So this notion, which is an architectural term, but it's this notion that living organisms are complex enough that there are all sorts of byproducts of the things that they do and the way they're structured. And some of these byproducts don't necessarily have an evolutionary reason, meaning that they didn't come out as a result of natural selection. Although if the environment changes, they might actually be useful. Now, in the case of transcendence, I think it is a byproduct. I don't think it's, it was selected. I don't see any particular biological advantage in thinking about transcendence. But I think that transcendence is a more or less inevitable byproduct of the fact that we have large brains capable of consciousness and therefore of asking ourselves, where the hell am I and where am I coming from and where am I going? So once you start asking yourself that question, which presumably other animal species don't, we don't know that for sure, but until we find out otherwise, I don't think there is any other species on earth that has a brain ability sophisticated enough to ask themselves that kind of questions. So once you have those kinds of questions, then you have to come up with answers. And projecting agency outside of oneself probably is an adaptive trait. People have speculated that early hominids would have a very sensitive agent projecting sort of psychological mechanism, meaning imagine being early hominid in the savannah and then you hear the rustling of the leaves behind you and you think, oh, it's nothing, it's just the wind. And then it's a lion and that's it. That's the last thing you're going to think. If on the other hand, you think, oh shit, it's a lion. I need to get the hell out of here. And then it turns out it was the wind. Man, you, you haven't lost that much. You're still alive. So the idea has been proposed for some time that agency projection, that is projecting agency on things outside of yourself was poss possibly adaptive. Once you have it, however, you apply it to all sorts of things that where agency doesn't belong. When people get upset with their computers, for instance, and start yelling at them, that's a projection of agency, which clearly is rational. The computer isn't going to respond to you. He's not responsible for whatever mm -hmm. happened. And yet you're yelling at it and you're getting upset. People have also suggested that transcendence comes out of a similar byproduct. So that, that imagining that there are gods out there or much larger versions and more sophisticated versions of ourselves is a result of a mechanism of psychological projection of agency. That doesn't mean that really there are gods out there or there really are. In fact, you can see this very clearly in some of the ancient writings. Again, you mentioned Stoicism. And just before we talked, I was rereading for, for an essay that I'm about to write. I was rereading Cicero's On the Nature of the Gods. And Cicero was not a Stoic, but he was very, he was a skeptic, in fact. But he was very sympathetic to the Stoics. And there is a part in On Divination where he actually explains what the arguments of the early Stoics were for the existence of a transcendental reality and for attributing reason to the universe itself, which they called God. And the argument is exactly what we would today recognize as a projection of agency. One of the early Stoics, Zeno said, look, we, we see complex things. We see a house that is very orderly and you immediately infer that there is an owner of the house that has kept it orderly. Look at the cosmos. They're very orderly. So there must be somebody that is keeping track of things and keeping them in order. That's a fallacious argument, but it's a very natural argument to make. And it's based on our tendency to project agency. I often catch myself projecting 
rationality and skepticism and enlightenment humanism as these adaptive ideals that we're moving towards as a species and evolution is selecting for us to become more intelligent and again move towards this rational ideal and then of course there's trivial examples like if you see something in the bush and it could be a threat so you perceive it as a threat like evolution in that case wouldn't select for veracity but would select for neuroticism and then when you think about pseudoscientific (laughs) ideas and mimetic evolution in the Dawkins sense Sometimes it's the more irrational ideas that tap into our emotions that, again, aren't true, that are the ones that propagate over yeah. time. So that's, exactly. that's been hard for me to do, too, because there's something very elegant, even if not true, about viewing evolution as this sort of natural selection process that's going to get closer to some sort of, again, transcendent, rational mm-hmm. ideal. It's very tempting. That's right. But if you think about it, it's eh, not really. One of, you know... One of the famous phrases by Martin Luther King Jr. was that the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. Baloney. There is no moral arc of the universe, and it doesn't bend anywhere. Morality is a human invention, which has a function. It has the function of making sure that within a particular group, we actually cooperate with each other because, of course, we're social animals, and our survival and flourishing depends on cooperating with each other. But that's what it is. There is no, no moral arc, universal moral arc. And to think of it in that way, in the way in which Martin Luther King Jr. did think of it, I think is dangerous because then it it generates fantasies of no matter how bad the situation is now, eventually things are going to turn out for the best because the universe itself is heading that way. Obviously, things are... No, it's not. And so you have to fight every single battle and you have to be open to the possibility that not only sometimes you lose, but sometimes you win and then things are going to be reversed, that there is good moral regress. I think, I don't want to get it too much into politics, but I think the United States has seen moral regress at a national level in multiple occasions over just the last few years. We have lost rights that we had, that people have fought very hard for, and they were, most people took for granted at, at this point, and then suddenly they're gone. So now you have to fight the battle again. So I don't see the moral arc going in any direction. I've seen it as a zigzag up and down kind of thing, depending on what we do and what we don't do. Are you familiar with Spinoza's philosophy of God as nature and Mm -hmm. viewing morality as natural law? Yes, and I think it was right, broadly speaking. It's attributed to Spinoza, but in fact, this actually goes back to to the Stoics and and Cicero. Those were the first ones to articulate the notion of natural law. And of course, the Christians throughout the Middle Ages and earlier in a sense took over that kind of notion as well. Thomas Aquinas writes about natural law in quite, in quite with a certain degree of sophistication. So the notion to me makes sense, interestingly, from an evolutionary perspective. So natural, the notion of natural law can be, of course, cashed out in different ways, right? I don't buy the idea that natural law is a universal law. That would be the Martin Luther King version of it. That is, Mm -hmm. that morality is somehow cosmic. The ancient Stoics thought so, but that's because they thought that the universe itself was a living organism endowed with reason. I don't believe that that that's what the universe is, so I don't buy this notion that natural law is actually cosmic. But natural law is local, meaning that at a very minimum, you can think of it this way. Look, human beings are a particular species of highly intelligent social mammals. Therefore, 
there are certain things that are naturally good for us and other things that are naturally bad for us. And there are certain kinds of behaviors that are conducive to the naturally good things and certain kinds of behaviors that are not conducive to the naturally good things. And that's the basis on which you build natural law. Let me give you a trivial example. I think it is a natural law that murder is bad. And by murder, the either random or unjustified killing of another human being. And sure enough, there is not a single society in the history of humanity that condones murder. Even though, of course, there is variations about what they do and how exactly they define it, et cetera, et cetera. But nobody, no society condones murder. Why not? Because if we live in a group of individuals who are interdependent, and then all of a sudden somebody starts killing people without rhyme or reason or for profit, clearly that undermines the basic fabric of society. We're going to unravel as a group. We're not going to function as a group. So natural law there tells you that, therefore, murder is, in fact, immoral, unethical, however you want to put it. That I find fairly convincing. The problem with natural, and also the advantage of, before I get to the problem, the advantage of natural law is that it, it makes sense of something that we say all the time. Often we say things like, oh, that law, meaning positive law, meaning a human law, that specific human law, is just or is unjust. How would you know that if there is no standard of reference? If you start from the these days fairly common conception that laws are in fact just human, they are human create they are arbitrary human creation, then there is no criterion to say that a law is just or unjust. It, you, what you're saying when you say it's just or unjust is I like it or I don't like it. That's all. But most people don't mean I like it or I don't like it. This is not a flavor of ice cream that we're talking about, right? We're talking about a very deep conviction that certain things are just or unjust. Where the hell do we get that notion? We get it from a basic instinct for fairness, which we actually share with other primates. You can do experiments. People have done experiments on the application of concepts like fairness in, say, bonobos or capuchin monkeys, and they turned out to respond in the same way in which a human being would respond. Why? Because they're also social mammals. The problem, however, so I find the whole notion of natural law convincing. The problem is, however, that it's a fairly general notion. You don't get a lot of specific positive, meaning human laws, out of it. So yeah, you get the fact that murder is unacceptable. Theft probably also is unacceptable, if, at least if you're in a society that recognizes private property and stuff like that. But there's a lot of other stuff that it's not clear to me you can derive from natural law, or at least not uncontroversially. So for instance, should abortion be legal or not? I, you can make a, the argument from the point of view of natural law either way, and you can make it convincingly, I think, either way. Now, I think one version is going to be more convincing than another to me, but that may very well be because I actually subscribe to a particular set of political, modern political positions, and therefore I find uh, a, a particular answer more congenial. So it's not always going to be possible to derive specific laws about specific issues on the basis of natural law. But nevertheless, natural law is, I think, a thing, and it's, uh, and it's fundamental. It's recognized today even by the United Nations, even though they don't call it that. But the United Nations Declaration of Universal Human Rights is, implies the notion of natural law. Otherwise, there wouldn't be anything universal about it. Do you think that 
the evolutionary selection for some things being better than worse. Like we would rather eat our favorite meal than be ripped to shreds by a pack of wolves. Like even at those two extremes, <laughs> as soon as you have value preferences that you implicitly endorse something like a best possible state and worst possible state, and then combine that with a capacity for abstract thought. And that's where you get that sort of notion of transcendence. If some things are better than others, then there's a hypothetical best thing out there. Yeah, that's certainly the way Plato did it. So when he went from particulars to, to universals and he said, oh, so there must be a transcendent form, as he called it. If we all agree, for instance, that this thing is beautiful, that thing is beautiful, that other thing is beautiful, what well, would all these things have in common? Oh, beauty. Where does that beauty, concept of beauty come from? There must be a universal form of which these are individual reflections. That's certainly one way to go. But the other way to go is the way Aristotle did it. Is, you know, you're nuts. What's happening here is simply that we identify a bunch of particulars as beautiful, and then we generalize the concept. It, the, the general concept, universal, is a human creation. It's a creation of the human mind. It's not out there. It's not mind independent. But look, that, that discussion between about the nature of universals is still going on today among mathematicians. From what I know, the last time I checked, half of mathematicians are Platonists and the other half are not. <laughs> so they themselves, when you ask a mathematician, so what do you think is the nature of mathematical and geometrical objects? Half of them will say, oh, they're a reflection of a mind-independent thing. Oh, wait, you mean you're a Platonist? And, I've uh, gone in know. circles about this. You can probably tell that I'm sympathetic to the Platonist or Jungian or Spinoza's take of these abstract ideals yep. existing. And then, of course, skepticism can tear that down. Then I think, what is skepticism doing? It's using rationality to come to a more fundamental truth. And then it seems even to be a skeptic, you have to have some sort of ideal of rationality in your toolkit, right? So then you, uh, I, I yeah. guess you would need some sort I, of axioms like point. a principle. Yeah, you always need axioms. That's right. You always need axioms. And those axioms may be arbitrary or may be defensible by looking at other axioms outside of the system that you're concerned with. But Look, you're right. I don't think there is a final answer there. I, as far as Platonism, mathematical Platonism specifically, I changed my mind multiple times during my life. There was a period where it was like, oh yeah, I find the Platonism argument compelling. And then, no, that's not, that's just not, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. It's fine to think, to be thinking about these things and changing your mind and say, no, I find this more, more compelling than not. However, I would push back about against the notion that a skeptic has to have a notion of universal rationality. All we need as skeptics is instrumental rationality, not a universal system. So all we say, all we can, all we need is to say, look, rationality is simply the ability, the evolved ability to think about problems and trying to and solve them. And yes, in order to solve problems, depending on what particular problem we're talking about, you have to make assumptions. Mm -hmm. And those assumptions may or may not be defense, defensible. They certainly they're not defensible within the system. So you have to start somewhere in order to, but that's true in mathematics as well. If you want to, what is the difference between Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometry? The axioms. And the axioms are arbitrary. Mm -hmm. There's not, you can pick them. And typically mathematicians pick them because of the interesting conclusions that in directions that the of research that they that those axioms open up. But it doesn't make any sense, for instance, 
to say, to ask a mathematician, where do you think that Euclidean geometry is true or not? What do you mean true? Is it, you can ask if it is coherent, internally coherent, meaning have you derived the conclusions properly given those axioms? Yes, that's a good question. You can ask if it's useful. That is, can I use Euclidean geometry in order to draw the boundaries of my field in so that it's separate from the field of my neighbors? Yeah, that's a good question. But if you start asking, is Euclidean geometry true? I don't know what that means. So that indicates to me that internal coherence is certainly something to strive for. Usefulness is certainly something to strive for. But beyond those two, I'm not sure that we can talk about our universal rationality. Is this the classically skeptist take? You've written about new skepticism. Perhaps we can close talking about what that is. Yeah. There are two classic skeptics takes. One is the Pyrrhonian or the Pyrrhonist take, and the other one is the academic skeptic. Academic because this was a phase of Plato Acad Plato's academy that went through a phase of skepticism. The Pyrrhonists are completely agnostic about whether humans can have knowledge or not. And therefore, they think that the way to go is to suspend judgment. That if you ask me any question about things that are not evident, things are things like, I'm talking to you, that's evident. I don't need to be agnostic about that. But if you start asking me things like, is there free will? Then I go to agnosticism if I'm a Pyrrhonist. And they think that if you take that position, if you are agnostic about most things, then you're going to reach a ataraxia, which is tranquility of mind. You're going to be just relaxed. You're going to be chill, chilled because you're not attached your your sense of self is not attached to a particular notion that may turn out to be wrong. And look, they had a point, right? Look at how many people have these days have got to the point where they think of certain positions, political positions or ideological positions, or even positions about facts, like whether vaccines work or not, they have incorporated them into their identities and they get really upset when those identities are challenged, right? So the Pyrrhonists had a point there. But I tend to favor the academic skeptic position, which most famously was articulated by Carniades, who was a Greek skeptic, and Cicero. And the academic position is that pretty much knowledge with a capital K or truth with a capital T is just not a human thing. And it's not a human thing. It's not achievable by humans. And it's not achievable because the two sources, the two fundamental sources of knowledge that we have are our senses and our ability to reason. And we know that both of them are fallible. And therefore, for anything that you say, no, this is true, you must have arrived there by a combination of sensorial experience and reasoning. And I can point out that both of those are flawed. Therefore, yeah, you're really sure that's true? And so the academic skeptics' conclusion was, look, we should, what makes much more sense is to attribute different degrees of probabilities or likelihood to different beliefs. It basically is the modern Bayesian approach, if you really want to put it in mm -hmm. terms, in modern terms, right? And so if you ask me, is there free will? Okay, I'm going to attach a probability there. I'm, I'm going to say, depending, if by free will you mean this, then yeah, I'm 90% confident that there is. Do vaccines work as a general proposition? Yeah, I'm 99% confident that they do. Will Russia exterminate Ukraine? And eh, that one, I have no idea. So I'm going to go 50-50, that sort of stuff. And as soon as you attach a probability, you're doing two things. First of all, 
Now, it's reasonable for somebody to ask you, why do you attach that particular probability? So you have to explain. That means that you have to have a process by which you arrive at that estimate of probability. And number two, it means you can change your mind. Cicero, one of, one of, one of the favorite, my favorite things that Cicero wrote is being an academic skeptic affords you the luxury of changing your mind and without being criticized. You cannot be criticized as a skeptic for changing your mind because that's the whole point. <laughs> new data come in, new sensorial experiences, new reasoning, new argument. Therefore, I'm going to change my mind. Academic skeptic sounds pretty good. I think stoic Bayesian sounds even better. Oh, it's like, great. <laughs> thank you very much for your time, Massimo. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.